0: Good morning everyone. Okay. I don't know uh, why everyone's scared of Karabo, But uh, nobody wants to sit here apparently. So anyway, not a problem. Can everyone hear me okay? Yeah? Could it be a bit louder? Okay. Do me what you mind turning it up? Sorry, I'm a bit I'm a bit sick, so I'm not going to be able to project much better than this today, unfortunately. So, we'll make use of technology. Okay, thank you. That's great. Well, it is my joy to open God's Word with you. My joy to you. It's been my joy this morning to sing with you, worship the Lord with you. Good to see you all, and uh, now it'll be good to hear from God's Word together. Now we're in the middle of a short series on justification, and we started off by saying that this is one of those truths that you absolutely must get right. There's a lot you can be wrong about and still be a Christian, there's a lot you can be wrong about and still be a healthy Christian, even. But this is not one of those truths. If you don't grasp this truth, if you don't embrace it wholeheartedly, then you are not a true Christian. You're not saved. You have a misplaced confidence of think. If you think you're right with God, and you and you, you do not believe this truth, you do not understand this truth. You, your your confidence of being right with God is, is, is misplaced. It is a false confidence. You are in fact still his enemy, deserving of his wrath for your sin and your rebellion against him. In one place the Apostle Paul says that even if an angel comes and preaches a message that is different than the gospel of justification by faith alone. That angel must be anathema, which means let the the angel be accursed, let him be damned, which is obviously a big thing for Paul to say, a, a strong thing for Paul to say. And he doesn't say it lightly. He says it because this is such a vital, precious truth. Along with the truth, of who God is, this is the most important truth in the universe. And what we've seen so far is that every single last one of us, every human being, needs justification because we fall short of the glory of God. And that's true whether we've lived in in an outwardly sinful way or whether we've had a very religious upbringing and lived a a comparatively moral life. I say comparatively because that is exactly the issue. We tend to compare ourselves with others and think we are better than we are, because instead of comparing ourselves with God's standards, we're comparing ourselves with other sinful people. The reality is that God is holy holy, holy, holy. And we all fall far short of His standards. We are much more sinful than we think we are, and sin is much more serious than we think it is. It is rebellion against the Creator, the Giver of life, the Giver of every good gift, our holy God and King. And we talked remember about the fact that while God is love he's also holy and just and he is the judge of all mankind the judge and as a holy God he is rightfully angry against sin and as a just judge he must punish sin he can't just look the other way he must punish all sin. And you'll remember we said that justification is a legal term it's courtroom language another way we could talk about it is to be justified by the judge is the same as being declared not guilty it's the same as being declared righteous the judge looks at your life considers the evidence and then gives a verdict and god will do that for every one of us the bible is clear It is appointed for man once to die, and afterwards comes judgment. And we saw last week that as we stand before God the judge, we have only two options. We've only got two possible defenses we can offer. Either we try to present our good works, our morality, our Bible knowledge, our religious activities like church attendance and Bible reading, fasting, and putting offering in the offering plate. We can try and present these things, our achievements in life, our good family. Now, my grandfather was a pastor and my great-grandfather was a pastor. We can try and present these things that have something to do with us. We can try and present these to the judge in an effort of trying to stand out from the rest trying to impress the judge with us being holier or, or, or more impressive than others. Or we can say to the judge, I have absolutely nothing I can present to you from my own character and life. Nothing that will even begin to make up for my sin and rebellion against you. But I present to you the life and death of Jesus Christ. The Bible tells me he came into this world to save sinners like me. He lived a sinless life and he obeyed God perfectly in every way, fulfilling all righteousness. So when he died on the cross, it was not a death he deserved, it was a death He died to pay the debt that I owe for my sins. And he has paid that debt in full. And his perfect righteous life, his perfect life of obedience and sacrifice and love, he gives to me as a gift, though I do not deserve it. Will you not declare me righteous Because of His righteousness. God, I offer you the righteousness of Jesus. Will you not declare me righteous because of Him? And hear me, friends. Option one is never going to work. Not for any one of us. Not for Mother Teresa. Not for the the most uh, compassionate, the most sacrificial, the most moral person you've ever heard of in this life it does not work we are not righteous turn to jesus ask him to pay the debt you owe for your sin ask him to give you his righteousness if you rely on his righteousness before the judge you will be justified that is the doctrine of justification in a nutshell If we want to be found righteous before God, we have nothing to offer God from ourselves. It is 0% you, 100% Jesus. You despair of putting any confidence, any trust in your performance, your obedience, your morality, anything to do with you, and you instead cling, you embrace, you wholeheartedly You put all your confidence in what Jesus has done for you by dying on the cross to pay for your sins and by the righteousness He offers you from His perfect life. So now today we're going to spend some time thinking about some of the implications of this doctrine. Since this doctrine is true, since justification works in this way, what other things are true? There's a lot of wonderful things, actually, that are true because justification is true and because it works the way that it does. And we won't be able to address uh, anywhere close to all of them today. But what we're going to do is we're going to look at the next few verses here in Romans and we're going to uh, identify some of the implications that Paul talks about. And that is in Romans three twenty-five b to verse 31. Follow along with me as I read. I'm going to read uh, from verse 21, though, to give us a little bit more context. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. Who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. The first implication of justification by faith is that it vindicates God's character. It vindicates God's character. In other words, it proves that He is just. It proves that He is righteous. Look at verse 25b. This was to show God's righteousness. In verse 26 it was to show His righteousness. Paul's talking about the cross. Jesus' death on the cross showed God's righteousness, proved God's righteousness. When Paul talks about the reason Jesus died on the cross, he begins with God, which is important because it's so different than how we normally think. We normally answer this question in regards to ourselves. If someone was to ask you, why did Jesus die on the cross? You'd say, well, he died on the cross to pay for my sins. And that's true. But we see here that to really understand the cross, we have to go deeper. When Paul talks about the reason for the cross, he begins by talking about God. Some theologians would even say Jesus died for God. We like to say Jesus died for us. And again, it's true. But it's also true that Jesus died for God. He died to satisfy and demonstrate the righteousness of God. He died so that, as verse 26 puts it, God could be both just and the justifier of sinners. Jesus died so that the righteous judge could still uphold justice, could still punish sin as it deserves, while also letting guilty sinners like you and me go free. When you talk to a lot of people about things like God and judgment and sin, they tend to ask, "How can a loving God judge sinners?" I'm sure most of you have heard that saying before, right, uh, or something along those lines. Well, if God is love, how how can he send people to hell? How can he Judge sinners. That's what they think is the big problem. That's what they think doesn't match up. How can God judge sin? But the real problem, according to Paul and the Bible, is the exact opposite. And that is, how can a holy God forgive sin? How can a holy God not judge sinners? He's holy, He's righteous, he ju- He's just. He always acts in accordance with what is right, the Bible tells us. He always rewards good. He always punishes evil. That's fundamental to the nature of God, according to several passages, that He's consistent and that He does what is right. And if we think about it, that actually makes the entire Old Testament a very big problem. Because what about Adam and Eve, even from the very beginning? Why didn't God just wipe them out? The wages of sin is death. He could have. It would have been right and just for him to do so. Paul says in 3 verse 25b, this was to show God's righteousness, the cross was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins Okay, that includes the sins of Adam and Eve it includes the sins of every Old Testament believer including some heroes of the faith Adam, I'm sorry, we already said Adam and Eve (laughs) Moses David Abraham. They all sinned in significant ways. Not a single one of them had a righteousness on their own. Not a single one of them could justify themselves before God. So Paul says in verse 25, in his divine forbearance, in other words, in his patience, God passed over former sins. God passed over former sins. He withheld judgment. And how could God do that? How could he forgive David? Remember David and Bathsheba? That's that's about as horrendous as it gets, honestly. To be the king and to have so much but then to decide I must have that woman also and to cover up my sin I'll make sure that her husband dies in battle it's awful how can Nathan the prophet who confronted David tell him the Lord has put away your sin you shall not die how, how, how is that possible When the Lord is holy and righteous, if he's just. Do you see the problem? It's a big problem. And this is why Jesus had to come. For a long time, God was patient, right? In his forbearance, in his patience. He passed over sins. And because of that patience, because of him withholding judgment, it could look like he didn't care about sin. It could look like he was forgiving sinners without their sins being paid for. But it was just postponing judgment. This is why Paul says that the cross shows God's righteousness. The cross vindicates him. It proves his righteousness. It proves that he is just because at the cross, David's sins are paid for. At the cross, Moses' sins are paid for. At the cross, Abraham's sins are paid for. God is righteous overall. He didn't just look the other way, He didn't just ignore murder and adultery. He didn't Just look away when Abraham allowed his wife to get married to someone else and lied about it, saying she was his sister. And on and on and on. No, no, no. These Old Testament believers put their faith in God's promise of mercy and he postponed their judgment to the cross. He passed over their sins. He postponed their judgment until Jesus could receive it for them and then it's like he took all the sins of all these men and just piled them on Jesus years and years and years of sins Sto- that he'd been storing up he just piled them on Jesus at the cross and that is exactly what Jesus does for us too it's how a just and holy God Can forgive sinners like you and me. The cross does show us God's grace, it most certainly does, but it also shows us His holiness, it shows us His righteousness, it shows us His justness. It shows us that He is not a God who has ever once failed to punish sin. Every sin ever committed. Will be punished either on the cross or in hell this doctrine shows us god's perfect righteousness if you believe in justific- justification by works um, you'll take sin sorry yeah if you believe in justification by works right It's easy to think, if I feel like I have to work for my sin, it's because I take sin more seriously. But the opposite is actually true. If you believe in justification by works, it means, honestly, that you take sin too lightly. Or that you think too little of God's holiness. Because there's no way, there's no way that you can think that God is as holy as the Bible presents Him. And still believe that your imperfect efforts to do good deeds and to be religious will satisfy His justice. If I really thought that me going to church and putting a little bit of money in the offering plate could make God overlook all the times I've thought terrible things, I've said terrible things, I've wanted terrible things, then I'm taking sin far too lightly and thinking far too little of God's holiness. The way God justifies sinners through faith, in fact, shows us how seriously He takes sin. He can't just ignore it. He can't let it slide. And our imperfect efforts at obedience will not satisfy His justice. He must pour out wrath on sin. One theologian, Jonathan Edwards, has even said that the way God shows His grace to sinners is frightening. God shows us mercy, but He has to crucify His Son to do so. We have a very, very holy God. And and He can't grant us forgiveness lightly. He punished sin so that we can be forgiven. That's why Paul says in verse 26, It was to show God's righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. As we look back at the cross, we see that we have a just and righteous God. He is so righteous that He could not justify us without dealing with our sin by punishing someone as important and beautiful and holy as Jesus in our place, which actually is part of what should give us assurance of salvation as well. The justice of God is scary for the unsaved sinner. God will, if that's you today, God will punish your sin. He won't just let it slide. Your only hope is to put your faith in Jesus so that He takes the punishment for your sin. Never in the history of the world has there been one sin that God has forgiven without punishing him. For the person who has put their faith in Christ, the righteousness of God, his justice is their best friend because as Paul says, we are justified through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation. In other words, we are justified because our sins have already been judged and already been paid for. Charles Spurgeon once put it that if God's justice were to somehow come to us, imagine God's justice as a person. If it was to somehow come to us as believers and say to us, you've sinned and your sin must be punished. As believers, we can say back to justice. Justice, you've already punished my sins. All of them. Absolutely everything that I should have suffered has been suffered by my substitute, Jesus. 2,000 years ago, finished. And so while it is true that I owe you a debt greater than I could ever pay, in Christ, I owe you nothing. For all I owe, He's already paid The cross shows us the unswerving justice of God. The justice of God means that He's he's going to punish all sin, but it also means that He will not punish that sin twice. He is a just God. If your sin has been paid for, it has been paid for. The true problem has never been, how can God judge sin? It's always truly been how can God be just and still forgive? Which is what makes what the Bible teaches about justification so important. God was so committed to saving us, he found a way at great cost himself to be both just and the justifier. This doctrine glorifies God. By showing that he is both. Secondly, justification by faith should humble us. It should humble us. Paul asks in verse 27, What becomes of our boasting? And that sounds a bit funny because it almost sounds as if somebody would be disappointed. Oh, but I like boasting. How am I going to boast now? But honestly, it captures the way our human hearts work pretty well. We are always looking for a reason to boast. We're always looking for something to take personal pride in. Look at me, I did this, I accomplished this. We love anything that gives us a reason to feel better about ourselves in comparison to others. And unfortunately, that's probably one of the reasons it's often so difficult for people to truly embrace the doctrine of justification by faith alone. I haven't heard anyone put it quite as bluntly uh, when I've shared the gospel with them. But it does seem that maybe this disappointment, this desire that they would rather be able to point to something in their own lives. For their confidence is a reason that they resist justification by faith alone. The doctrine itself is not so hard to understand, and yet, so often, when you talk to people about this doctrine, it, they just can't seem to accept it. It is so hard for our human hearts to to accept, or, or, or perhaps to to, to truly accept. Uh, be at peace with truly to truly uh embrace is something that god would offer us because it's just not the way our world works and it's not the way our hearts are inclined this passion for boasting though isn't good for us it's not good for our relationships It's not good for our relationship with God, obviously, either. We weren't made to boast in ourselves. We were made to glory in God, in God alone. When we boast in ourselves, we, we actually destroy ourselves. It does something really bad in us. When we're boastful, it affects our relationships with others. When we're working so hard all the time at defending ourselves... And, and trying to promote ourselves. And that is part of why it's so wise and good of God to have designed salvation the way He did, in such a way that we have absolutely no reason to boast in ourselves. In answer to the question, what becomes of our boasting, Paul answers, it is excluded. It has no place. There is none of it. By what kind of a law? By a law of works? No, by the law of faith. In other words, if it was possible to be accepted and justified by God on the basis of our obedience to the Mosaic law, if that was truly possible, then we would have a reason to feel superior to others. We would have a reason to boast. But the law of faith excludes boasting. As we've already seen in this sermon series, receiving righteousness by faith means it is a gift. It is not something earned. It's not something deserved. And so the law of faith means then we have no reason to boast in this righteousness as if we have earned it. We have no reason to boast in this righteousness as if it has anything to do with us. In reality, faith and boasting in yourself are opposites. Saving faith is the realization that there is nothing you can do but trust in what has been done in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Faith is the realization that God's pleasure in you will never be based on your performance for Him. Instead, God's pleasure in you will always will always be based upon Christ's performance for you. Do you hear that? God's pleasure in you will never be based on your performance for Him. His pleasure in you will always be based will always be placed uh, based <laughs> upon Christ's performance for you. Christ's performance for you. Saving faith is receiving that which is not our own. It's a gift. It's looking to someone else to save us. It's recognizing our own unrighteousness, our own ungodliness. It's an act of hopeless people, helpless people who realize they must, their only hope, their only possibility of salvation is confidence in Christ alone. Even the gift to receive, even the the faith rather, to receive the gift of Christ's righteousness is a gift from God. Remember Romans 1 and its description of our tendency to push the truth away, to suppress the truth, to hold it back. To convince ourselves and believe lies that we tell ourselves. Brothers and sisters, the only reason we are able to have faith is because God's enabled us to believe. If we believe, it's not because of cleverness or because somehow we came up with it. It's because God opened our eyes. If God left us to ourselves, we'd still be busy putting full effort into suppressing the truth. Being saved by faith excludes boasting. Our justification is all God from beginning to end. Third, justification by faith unites Christians. One of the reasons Paul wrote the book of Romans was because there was some tension between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. In Paul's mind, this division between Jew and Gentile was the biggest, the single biggest division there was in his context, in his time. In the world today, we tend to think of, of other things that divide us, like uh, race uh, or income level. Even after people became Christians, though, during Paul's time, this Jew and Gentile rift continued to be a problem. There's a lot of places in the New Testament addressing it. And a lot of it had to do with Jews thinking. Gentiles had to first become Jewish to really be part of the people of God. And obviously, that's not a particular problem that we tend to wrestle with today very much. But there's still all kinds of things that can divide us as Christians today. It's ridiculous that people can be proud of the color of their skin and divide on the basis of that. But people do. And if it's not race, it's position in, in society, it's income level, it's various achievements. Some of us have money and others don't. And often the people with money feel superior to those who don't. And the people who, le- who have less Can sometimes feel angry at the people who do think about education one person in a family goes to university gets a good education and then starts feeling superior to everyone else in his family who didn't and so they start getting angry at him and thinking who does he think he is there are all kinds of things that divide us and our world honestly doesn't really have a solution because it doesn't deal with the fundamental problem. But justification by faith does. First, by showing us the problem. We've already looked at the fact that the Jews felt they were better than the Gentiles because they had the law. They wanted to be justified. They would point to that as their little badge that marked them out as special. And that's why Paul then, in the beginning of Romans here, takes them back to the law and shows them that their spiritual, their spiritual heritage doesn't do them any good. It doesn't save them. When it comes to God, we are all in the same position. There's nothing any of us can do to show God, to, nothing any of us can show God and say, look at this, isn't it impressive? Won't you save me because of this? Now, most of us have learned not to be overtly boastful in life. We don't go around talking, typically, about how much better we are than others. But it doesn't mean that we're not thinking it. Our culture is better than yours. Our abilities are better than your abilities. My achievements are more impressive than yours. But but justification by faith absolutely demolishes this type of thinking. It shows us that this type of thinking is completely foreign to God. The first thing it shows us is that in terms of the most important relationship with the most beautiful and worthy person in the universe, we are all in exactly the same position. We all deserve to be damned. We all deserve His wrath. And actually, right, as we've talked about, if we were to try and present any of these worldly things, any of these things to do with ourselves, uh, as a basis for our foundation, it, uh, as a, for our salvation, it would be offensive to God. It would not save us. So the cross brings us all down to the same place. Feeling superior to others, in fact, even feeling inferior to others, really is a theological problem, because it's a denial of what the Bible teaches us about us, and a denial of what the Bible teaches us about God, and that's where Paul goes next in verse 29. He says, we hold that one is justified by faith, apart from the works of the law, Is God the God of Jews only? It's like he's saying, Look, I know there are different groups, but there is only one God, and God is one. Which is why Paul asks, Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. We're all sinners. And we all stand before the same God and judge. Justification by faith alone is the only means for any of us to be saved. We all need God to provide a righteousness for us. And if we've all been given the righteousness of God as a gift through faith, then what, honestly, what are these distinctions? They're all gone when God looks at Christians, what does he see? the righteousness of Jesus the righteousness of Jesus the righteousness of Jesus the righteousness of Jesus everything else is gone the cross doesn't only bring us down to the same place in humility. It also brings us up to the same place, to the amazing position of being beloved children of a holy God. If Jesus died for me and Jesus died for you, then how can I act like like you are somehow something less? If I was so sinful that God had to pour out His wrath, on His Son for the sins I committed, then how am I acting like I am somehow better? And, if justification means that the perfect righteousness righteousness of Christ has been credited to my account, if the Most Holy God looks upon me and sees the righteousness of Jesus, He accepts me, forgives me, delights in me, and loves me, because of what Jesus did then how can I go around feeling inferior to anyone else I am loved by God it's a wonderful thing that so many uh, of you in this church are doctors or aspiring to be doctors or nurses or dentists um Those professions will give you some wonderful opportunities to be a blessing to others. But you need to remember this. The world may think of you as as being in an entirely different category of person as a doctor. It's, hey, everybody's impressed. So much education, such a noble profession, such good pay, right? Right? So much respect tends to come with it. But before God, you're still a sinner who would deserve his wrath and judgment if Jesus hadn't taken it for you. And the Christian car guard or maid who stands next to you worshipping Jesus with you is every bit as welcome and loved and accepted by the Father as you are. Because when he looks at you both, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, God does not look at us the way the world does. We should be humbled, we should be united. Because we have all, we, we all share the most amazing experience. We. You know, you, you hear sometimes of cancer survivors and the camaraderie they'll feel together of, of you know, having gone through this near traumatic, near death uh, uh, sickness and and this difficult time. Well, we are all hell survivors. We are all those who've been rescued from a desperate position and rescued by God Himself. We are all brought near by the blood of Christ. We all have an eternity with the King of Kings awaiting us. We are united in the most profound ways because of Jesus. And finally, justification by faith alone honors the Word. Verse 31 says, Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. In Paul's day, some of the people who were attacking the gospel would do so by saying that salvation by faith alone minimizes the law. But Paul says it's exactly the opposite. It honors the law. First of all, we could say this. Justification by faith is what enables us to obey God's law. Paul here is talking about the commands of God. Uh, one of the ways Paul can talk about law is, is in the sense of God's commands, right? So here it's like he's saying, does justification by faith mean that we don't care about those commands and just throw them out and live however we, we, we want to now that we're saved by grace? to which he answers by no means, right? And there's several other places in the New Testament where Paul says the same thing, says it very, very strongly. No, we uphold the law because it really, at the end of the day, is only those who are justified by faith that are able to obey it. And there's a few reasons for, for that, that we don't have time to get into in depth today. For one, we have an altogether new motivation, right? Those of us who've been saved, we have a new motivation to keep God's laws because we now obey out of joy and out of a rock-solid position of already being loved and accepted by God. For another reason, those who God justifies are also those who are regenerated, who He gives a new hearts with the, a new heart that loves Him and that wants to live for Him. And Christians, also those who have the Holy Spirit within us, helping us to live for God. The second reason that justification by faith upholds the law is because it shows how serious God is about His law. It upholds the law in the fullest sense in that Jesus came and fulfilled it perfectly in order to save us. This is a salvation that is only possible by the perfect keeping of God's law. That's a lot in line of what we were talking about earlier. right? Just as God didn't just stop being just and say, it's fine, sinners can be declared righteous. Similarly, God didn't just stop caring about his word. It's not like it suddenly became unimportant to him that his word was was not obeyed. No. His only way of salvation that he provided was a way of salvation through the perfect keeping of his word. And finally, justification by faith fulfills the law. And what we mean by that is, is uh, the, the the section of the Old Testament that we would refer to as the law, the Pentateuch, five books of Moses, right? Paul knows that someone hearing the gospel might think, "Does that mean this whole section of the Bible is no longer any impo- no longer important?" Uh, and we know that someone could think that because in church history there have been people who have thought that way. But Paul's answer is, no, no way. The gospel fulfills everything that the law was talking about. It's not two different stories. When we talk about God justifying both Jews and Gentiles through Christ, we're talking about the same gospel, the same truth that God and Moses originally intended in the law. And Paul actually goes on to prove that in chapter 4 as he looks back to the law and shows how it reveals that even Abraham was justified by faith alone. We are not simply New Testament believers. We are whole Bible believers. In this gospel, the whole Bible has been either pointing forward to it or looking back at it. Justification justification by faith is really what the whole Bible is about. God glorifying Himself by upholding His justice and saving sinners through Jesus. This wonderful truth vindicates God's character and shows His righteousness shows how He can be both just and the justifier of sinners. It humbles us, it unites us, and it upholds God's law. Amen.